Lord, we pray that in your mercy, in the midst of these busy days and in the midst of often troubled and anxious or perhaps even full and satisfied hearts, that you'd keep transforming us by the power of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I played in a soccer team when I was at high school. I was in the first 11. Uh, being an immigrant, Hungarian background and extraction, I played walk ball. And uh, it was a seriously good team, actually. And it, for reasons that escaped me uh, at the time and continued to elude me, I was captain of the team. Uh, it meant that I gave this uh, presentation of the team at uh, you know, one of the school assemblies and all that kind of thing. Uh, we didn't quite win the competition, but we, we were right up there and it was a good team. But if the truth be told, I was a bit of a passenger in the team. I didn't uh, have nearly the skills of most of the other members. It's just that in my particular position on the soccer field, there were very few others to do the job. And uh, so I got, I got the nod, played in the team, and got really carried by these other much more skillful and competent players. That's the thing about teams, isn't it? That you can hide in the middle of one even if you're not that much of a performer yourself. Now I tell you that story because Israel was a team. Israel was the Lord's team, the Lord's nation. They played as a team, they lived as a team, they functioned as a team. They had a law, the law, the Torah, to govern their national life. The land hosted them. That was their home ground, if you like. God protected them. And at one level they were a great team. Uh, They had everything. It was personal religion via national religion. It was a spiritual religion via a legal religion. But the thing about teams is that you can be a passenger. And there were some passengers on Team Israel, sometimes even the captain of the team, the king who might have operated on the field like me, but relatively poorly. I want to suggest to you that one of the great contributions of Isaiah the prophet is that he announces and works out the decision by God to fundamentally disband the team. Isaiah sees in a mirror dimly, he doesn't get all the details, he doesn't stand the full picture, he joins it together only in dots, But one of his great contributions, he's a a profoundly creative, insightful theologian, and one of his great contributions is that he clears the way theologically for a whole new mode of God's dealings with his people. Jeremiah calls it a new covenant. Isaiah calls it the remnant. And so... This afternoon, as we examine chapters 7 through 12 of Isaiah's prophecy, we're going to look at the beginning of that redefinition. Of course, it was completed and enacted by Jesus, who loved and lived this prophecy, particularly the prophecy of Isaiah. From it, he quoted, from it, he drew his personal mission statement. Upon its comfort, he found uh, uh, comfort for himself. He loved and lived this prophecy in particular. 
There are two main parts which are sketched in your outlines which have finally been delivered uh, after failing myself these last two weeks. I think you've finally got an outline. You'll see it there. Um, I've got it in a table form and you, but I've just written it for you on the outline in kind of point form. There are two main parts to this section. One is in terms of a prophecy delivered to Judah which runs from chapter 7 verse 1 to chapter 9 verse 7. And the second is a prophecy which is written to Israel, chapter 9, verse 8, right through to chapter 11, verse 16. You see how there are two sets of Bible verses next to each heading. And Isaiah runs through the same basic themes both of those two times. Firstly, with respect to Judah, and then secondly, with respect to Israel. And each time, the same themes which are there in your points are elucidated. First, there is a call to decision. You see that in chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, or in Israel from 9, 8 to 10, 4. There is a failure which leads to the judgment of Assyria. Chapter 7, verse 18 to 8, 8, and 10, 5 to 15. The key concept of the remnant is introduced. 8, 9 to 22, and 10, 16 to 34. And then finally, in both cases, this culminates in a magnificent depiction of the king and his kingdom. 9, 1 to 7, and 11, 1 to 16. It's uh, a whole bunch of chapters. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Five chapters. And I hope that you find the uh, kind of distributing of the verses in a bit of a coherent theme which repeats itself in a pattern somewhat helpful. It helps, I think, to get a grip and a handle on what's being said here. Finally, chapter 12 is a song of joy and celebration of this magnificent work of God. Now, the key to the redefinition that Isaiah prophesies and sees is the drawing of important distinctions. What used to be held together, personal and national, spiritual and legal, those things which used to be held together will now, in Isaiah's vision, be distinguished. And it's on that basis that he's able to draw this non-national, non-Torah-based redefinition of the people of God and of what it means to be someone who's faithful to God. Today we're going to look uh, mainly at the first cycle to Judah. Uh, we'll have uh, one little visit over to the word to Israel. You can fill in that side of the table for yourself if you care to. So firstly then the moment of decision. Chapter 6, if you were here last week, uh, describes an encounter of a man with the Holy God. It was, if you like, a success. The man is Isaiah himself, he sees the Lord, he hears the Lord, he's cleansed, he's commissioned. Chapter 7, we see the encounter of a man with the Holy God, which is not a success. It is a terrible, tragic failure. Now the context uh, in which chapter 7 takes place is a real, violent trouble. Uh, there is, as I mentioned I think last week, an alliance between two of Judah's immediate northern neighbours who are banding together to resist Assyria, herself now on the warpath, sweeping across from the north and sweeping down through these two countries and headed towards Jerusalem. And these two northern neighbours have formed an alliance uh, in order to stop Assyria. They're looking for further help from Judah. Uh, Ahaz, the king of Judah, is petrified. He's got a rock and he's got a hard face. He's got the northern alliance against him, or he's got Assyria against him, and the guy's frankly quaking in his boots. 
Now you've got to kind of really see what's going on here. Um, this is real life and death stuff. This is not kind of, you know, will I catch a train home or not this afternoon or what sort of decision will I make? This is serious life and death. You may get a sense of that from um, some really great uh, battle scenes that you see recently. I, I saw Lord of the Rings 3, The Return of the King, and uh, when they're kind of uh, that great battle that's depicted there in the uh, defence of the city, Minas Tirith, in case you're a bit of a Lord of the Fans, the Lord of the, <laughs> Lord of the Rings fan, uh, that's the battle outside Minas Tirith with those murderous hordes crashing and gnashing and slashing and killing. And, and I don't know what you felt as the riders of Rohan. See, I'm, I'm with it. I actually read the book. Uh, the riders come sweeping in. And, and what do you do if you're the first, the front line of ride? I think I'd prefer to be in the sort of halfway middle section. Because you, you ride forward and it's just spears and swords and blood and there's just no chance, is there? What if you're in the city? And you remember the scenes when they start invading the city and there's, there's defenders dying everywhere. And you know what this is like. You can feel it, the, the, the sweat, the blood, the cries, the tears, the death, the stench, the fire, the smoke. That's the situation that Ahaz faces right now. And the Lord said to Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 3, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub. Means a remnant returns, his name. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fullest field, and say to him, Take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remilia. Because Aram, with Ephraim and the son of Remilia, has plotted against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and cut off Jerusalem and conquer it for ourselves and make the son of Tabel king in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Aram, the capital city, is Damascus. That's the capital city of the, the, the land of Aram. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, no longer a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelia. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. There you are in the city. The hordes are bearing down upon you. And the Lord says, verse 4, literally, be careful to do nothing. Take heed, be quiet. Literally, be careful to do nothing. If you're Ahaz, you think, well, Isaiah, look, thanks for this uh, interesting journey. Appreciate you and your son coming out here with me. But what kind of a stupid thing is that to say? Don't be afraid. Don't ally with the Assyrians. Do nothing. Let the Lord win the victory. This seems madness, doesn't it? Under the pressure of real life. Where, you might say, are the battle plans? Where's the strategy? Where's the explanation? All he's given is a promise. Smouldering stumps of firebrands. Burnt out sticks. Smoke look like burnt out sticks at the moment. They look pretty ferocious in their heat. I can imagine Ahaz saying, well, that sort of thing is okay for spiritual stuff. Be careful to do nothing. 
But buddy, I'm dealing with real life. You hear the problem there? Have you ever thought that way? Yeah, look, it's okay for this faith thing to work with respect to spiritual stuff. But when it comes to real life, career, money, food on the table, actual friends, job prospects, promotions, university advancement, good marks, you've got to kind of act a little more responsibly, sensibly. Bit of plagiarism here and there, well, that's just it's the way it has to be in this cutthroat kind of university world, isn't it? You've got to act with a bit more strategy. And you can see the problem with that kind of analysis. What Isaiah is saying is that spiritual and reality are not two separate spheres. There's deal with the invading enemy here, and then there's spiritual response here. We go to the temple for this, we go to the battlefield for this. No, spiritual and reality belong together. And seeing that, understanding that, perceiving that, believing that, that is what faith is. Hear that definition, why you? Faith is not believing what you know isn't true. Uh, I think that's quite a common view. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is seeing that reality is spiritual. That God and his word and his promises are the most real thing to be lived out in practical ways in the face of every difficulty, even if it means northern neighbours invading you and doing nothing. Nothing. It's a tough ask, this faith, isn't it? The Lord knows it and so he offers a sign. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as sea or high as heaven. Ahaz, however, doesn't want it. Uh, says, oh, no, I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. Uh, this is not from piety. This is fear. What if he got a sign that he asked for? He would then have to trust. And so the Lord offers to him a sign anyway in his unbelief. Verse 13 of chapter 7. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Notice, my God. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Uh, this is of course a very famous prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is picked up in the New Testament and applied to the wonderful virgin birth of Jesus. Ask a couple of questions. First, what is the sign that's promised here? It's a son. A son. Now much argument and ink has been spilt on the question of the translation of the word young woman. Is it young woman? Is it virgin? Who is this son? Is it Isaiah's son? He's got a son he's just mentioned. There's another son coming up. Who is it? Actually, uh, a scholar up here at uh, Moore College, Barry Webb, makes, I think, a very persuasive suggestion that sidesteps most of these problems with regard to this prophecy. He says that, like with many things in Isaiah's prophecy, what we're to see this is, is not as literal but as a metaphor. He points out that Israel herself has been depicted as a woman in chapter 1, verse 8. And in chapter 66, verses 7 to 8, 
Israel is depicted as a woman who gives birth to a child. What uh, Barry Webb suggests is that what's really being prophesied here as a sign to Ahaz is that a woman, namely Judah, will give birth to a son, namely a remnant. We've already had a a reference to a literal son, um, Isaiah's son, Shear Jashub, whose name is a remnant will, will return. Isaiah has invited Ahaz by taking him out to this uh, water supply with his son specifically to say join us in those who are faithful to God the remnant who trust in the Lord and Ahaz refuses and Isaiah now prophesies that Ahaz will see a sign it will be the remnant which he has refused to join the remnant that Judah in her destruction and judgment will give birth to. Well that then leads to a second question, what is it that this sign signifies? And I've already hinted at that, it's judgment. Verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your ancestral house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, departed from Judah, namely the king of Assyria. So what he's saying is that uh, the import of this son is judgment. This remnant, these survivors will eat curds and honey. The, 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 The diet of poverty and starvation. Ahaz is being a fool, says Isaiah. The land of the alliance nations will be deserted before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Within 13 years, in fact, both of the two northern neighbours were completely flattened by Assyria. 734 BC, 722 BC. But more than that, Ahaz's own land will have such days come upon it that have not happened since the day Ephraim departed from Judah. Assyria, his own land itself, will be swamped. See the point, I think we're beginning to get an outline of this redefinition. It's no longer enough just to be Israel anymore, or even part of Israel, part of the team. What is required from the Lord now is a deeply personal, practical faith. We'll come back to the shape of it in a moment, as it's spelled out in terms of a description of the remnant. For now, Isaiah goes on to depict the judgment of God in graphic and disturbing terms. We're only going to read it as I think this sort of prophecy of judgment is familiar to us by now. Uh, first, uh, this judgment is spoken of in generalities. Listen to it, verse 18 of chapter 7. On that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the sources of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. On that day the Lord will shave with a razor higher beyond the river. So now Assyria is not an animal, a bees, but an implement in the hand of God, razor. With the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. And it will take off the beard as well. On that day, one will keep alive a young cow and two sheep and will eat curds because of the abundance of milk that they give. 
for everyone that is left in the land shall eat curds and honey on that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns with bow and arrows one will go there for all the land will be briars and thorns and as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns and they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread this is all encompassing dreadful devastating judgment head and the hair of the feet probably uh, a euphemism for pubic hair along with the beard both uh, utter indignity public and private will come upon the people it will come upon Israel in the north will be wiped out verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8 then the Lord said to me take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz to have it attested for me by reliable witnesses the priest Uriah and Zechariah the son of Jeber and I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son and the Lord said to me name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz and before the child knows how to call my father or my mother the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria uh, Isaiah has a serious naming problem with respect to his children uh, at least this guy's brother had some hope a remnant will return uh, his younger brother Mehashalal Hashbaz well that means the spoil speeds the prey hastens uh, it's like your name was I'm going to smash you in pieces this is this is serious self-esteem company hi I'm Andrew hi I'm going to smash you in pieces you, you, you kind of hope he's got a middle name don't you like say Warwick so he could do the American thing and call himself well M. Warwick the son of Isaiah you know with just an initial for his first name it's not a great first name I'm going to smash you in pieces and yet that's what will happen to Israel Judah too will be judged up to her neck with Assyria but will survive chapter 8 verse 5 the Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and melt in fear before Rezin and the son of Remelia therefore the Lord is bringing up against it the mighty flood waters of the river the king of Assyria and all his glory it will rise above all its channels and overflow all its banks it will sweep on into Judah as a flood and pouring over it will reach up to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land O Emmanuel O God who is with us notice the plural there is God with us that's why uh, Barry suggests that it's a group of people uh, that is the sign Emmanuel God with us rather than an individual person that uh, Isaiah has in mind there which would be God with me some will survive from Judah not really the nation but this remnant this sign that Isaiah's prophesied individuals marked out by core characteristics the next section speak the next section speaks of this remnant specifically in terms of Isaiah and his children and his disciples and his disciples listen then uh, to point remnant and the two key characteristics which define what now it means to be the kingdom and the people of God not a nation any longer not the law any longer not the land any longer instead pick it up say verse 11 of chapter 8 for the Lord spoke thus to me while his hand was strong upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy 
Do not fear what it fears or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against, for both houses of Israel will become a rock one stumbles over, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. They are a fearful people, Judah, at this time. And fair enough, you might say, there are enemies bearing down upon them with deep destruction in their hearts. Fear is a big deal, of course, for us. I suspect that we are fearful much more than we recognise. And God says, do not fear. Do not call conspiracy what is conspiracy, what this people calls conspiracy, the two northern neighbours joining together. And do not fear what this people fears. It may surprise you know that the single most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Uh, it's not the command to love, though of course that's the core of God's desire for human life. It's not the command against pride, although clearly that's a terrible sin. It's not even the command regarding sexual purity and walking with integrity, crucial though those things are as well. God's most repeated instruction in the Bible is do not be afraid. 366 times that command occurs one for every day of the year, including a leap year, like 2004. Why is that? Why is that? That the Lord would say 366 times, don't be a... Do you think you'd get it by time, say, 212? Fear doesn't seem to be the most serious vice in the world. It's not one of the top, you know, seven deadly sins. No one ever receives church discipline for being afraid. You haven't been barred from receiving communion. My guess is the reason God says fear not so much is because fear is the number one reason human beings are tempted to avoid doing what God asks them to do. Fear is the number one reason Fear that my life won't go as well as I hope. Fear that I won't get ahead in the way that I hope. Fear that someone will be cross at me. Fear that they might not like me anymore. Fear that I might fail to achieve my goals. Fear, fear, fear. And so we take life into our own hands. We make alliances with Assyria. Whoever Assyria might be. We take life into our own hands instead of leaving life in God's hands. I'm going to read you another John Ortberg story. It's from his book. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. It's great fun. Um, he recounts a story by a guy called uh, Peter Palmer, um, uh, who tells of a time when he was seriously depressed and he went on an outward bound course. Um, and this is, this is both stirring and fun. It's long, but go with it. I chose the week-long course at Hurricane Island off the coast of Maine. I should have known from the name what was in store for me. Next time I'll sign up at Happy Gardens or Pleasant Valley. In the middle of the week I faced the challenge I feared most. One of our instructors backed me up the edge of a cliff 110 feet above solid ground. He tied a very thin rope to my waist, a rope that looked ill-kept to me and seemed to be starting to unravel and told me to start rappelling or abseiling down the cliff. 
do what? I asked. Just go, the instructor explained in typical outward bound fashion. So I went and immediately slammed into the ledge some some four feet down from the edge of the cliff with bone jarring, brain jarring force. The instructor looked down at me. I don't know if you've ever abseiled, but you know, there's a trick to it. I don't think you've got it quite right, said the instructor. <laughs> right, said I, being in no position to disagree, so what am I supposed to do? The only way to do this, he said, is to lean back as far as you can. You have to get your body at right angles to the cliff so that your weight will be on your feet. It's counterintuitive, but it's the only way it works. I knew that he was wrong, of course. I knew that the trick was to hug the mountain to stay as close to the rock as I could. So I tried again my way and slammed into the next ledge another four feet down. You still don't have it, the instructor said helpfully. Okay, I said, tell me again what I'm supposed to do. Lean way back, he said, and take the next step. The next step was a very big one, but I took it and wonder of wonders it worked. I leaned back into empty space, my eyes fixed on the heavens in prayer, made tiny, tiny moves with my feet and started descending the rock face, gaining confidence with every step. I was about halfway down when the second instructor caught up from below. Parker, I think you better stop and see what's just below your feet. I lowered my eyes very slowly and saw I was approaching a deep hole in the face of the rock. To get down, I would have to get around that hole, which meant I could not maintain the straight line of descent I'd started to get comfortable with. I'd need to change course and swing myself around that hole. I knew for a certainty that attempting to do so would lead directly to my death. (laughs) So I froze, paralysed with fear. The second instructor let me hang there, trembling in silence for what seemed like a very long time. Finally, she shouted out these helpful words, Parker, is anything wrong? (laughs) To this day, I don't know where my words came from, though I have 12 witnesses to the fact that I spoke them. In a high, squeaky voice, I said, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Then the second instructor spoke. It's time that you learn the motto of Outward Bound. Oh, great, I thought. I'm about to die and she's going to give me a motto. Then she shouted ten words that I hope never to forget. Words whose impact and meaning I can still feel. If you can't get out of it, get into it. If you can't get out of it, get into it. Ortberg goes on. This is your life. These are your failures and troubles in the context of the chapter. No helicopter is going to come and whisk you away. No genie will pop out of a bottle to rescue you. No magic eraser will make things disappear. This is your life. You can't get out of it. So get into it. Take one step toward trusting God in an area where you feel fear. Do not be afraid, says God. But he says a second thing. So you've got to ask yourself the question, how do you do that? How do you not get out of it, but get into it? What is it that can actually lead you down the path of most resistance in the face of your fears? Notice what Isaiah says, or what God says to Isaiah. The answer is not to stop fearing. The answer is to fear something else. To have something else so dominate the horizon of your mind that you don't let the other fear rule you. The antidote to fear is in fact fear. See that, won't you? The antidote to fear is fear. The fear of the Lord. Deep, 
reverence, awe, respect, submission, trust in His will that He will be with you no matter what, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that He is with you and nothing is worth losing His blessing for. Listen to these words from John Chrysostom, um, a great preacher of the 4th century AD, Uh, who was persecuted by the empress of his time. Listen to his his words in the face of persecution. The words of someone who overcame fear with a better fear. He said this, What can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth and all its fullness are the Lord's. Poverty I do not fear, riches I do not sigh for, and from death I do not shrink. See, he's a man who fears the Lord, who knows the Lord and what the Lord promises, who knows that the way of the Lord is good, though it may hurt, who trusts in this Lord, who fears this Lord, who is in awe of this Lord, in a way that enables him to deal with and not get out of but get into the things and the situations which he fears. You ought to ask yourself, what is it that you're afraid of? You're afraid of? What context provoke fear? When does your heart start beating quicker? When does the adrenaline start pumping? What things make you anxious? The antidote to fear is more fear, different fear, fear of the Lord, knowing his will and purpose, trusting and moving forward. That's the first key characteristic of the remnant. The second is in verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. See, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Now people say to you, consult the ghosts and the familiar spirits that chirp and mutter. Should not a people consult their gods on the, the dead on behalf of the living for teaching and for instruction? Surely those who speak like this will have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, etc., etc. Fear of God is the first characteristic of the remnant. The second characteristic is an abiding attention to the word of God to his prophet, to his teaching, to his instruction. Forming our thoughts and minds and hearts by this word and in particular not looking for guidance elsewhere. The ghosts and familiar spirits to which Isaiah refers. The horoscopes at their most crass level now. The self-help gurus, the teeny bopper magazines, the newspaper columnists. The second key characteristic of the remnant is that they know and imbibe into their very souls and the structure of their minds the Word of God. We need to rush on. Of course, this, uh, the future for this remnant is not mere survival out there eating herbs and honey, but to flourish in the grace and love of God. Though they go into exile, the prophet Isaiah sees, they will come back with joy. And this is described in both chapter 9 and chapter 11. 
and it is in the hands and power of a great one, a deliverer, a king whose description breaks the bounds of ordinary kings that this glorious future lies. I'll leave you read Isaiah uh, chapter 9 to yourself. We'll pick it up at chapter 11. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse. Stump, symbol of judgment. From the judgment out will come a shoot and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his eyes hear. And of course, as you hear of this shoot of Jesse, the contrast with Ahaz is unbearable, isn't it? Ahaz precisely judges by what his eyes see and decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, says Isaiah, of this great one, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. And such a wonderful king rules a world that is worthy of him. Verse 6, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. A a return to Eden, in fact, uh, where there was no carnivorous animals, but but all were, were vegetarians, if you like. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the ass and the the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Back in verse 6, it will be a child that will lead them, exercising dominion, the great promise and and, and command to the people, uh, the first human beings, will now be exercised by just a little child. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is the future for God's people, the remnant, those around Isaiah who fear God and tremble at his word. Peace transformation in ways that are beyond our understanding. The nations streaming in and the earth full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the task of the remnant as they grind out their lives in the exile that will come, in the catastrophic devastation that Assyria will bring and then the final destruction 140 years later that Babylon will bring the task of the remnant is to stay faithful to this vision to this promise to this future king well let's conclude the New Testament takes up this section of Isaiah these five chapters in wonderful ways Uh, there are dozens upon dozens literally of quotations of these chapters in the New Testament we're just going to pick up a couple of thoughts. Interestingly, 1 Peter 3 is a section where Isaiah 8 is quoted. 
in the context of people, uh, the people of God responding to a hostile world, hostile world around them and giving an account of their hope and faith, Peter says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. You see what Peter's doing? He's picking up this word of faithfulness and command to the remnant and he's applying it to his own people, his own remnant, if you like, the dispersed people of God, but now defined, redefined Christologically. Uh, In the past it was... um, uh, don't fear what they fear, but the Lord of hosts, him shall you regard as holy. Now what Peter says is, in your hearts sanctify Christ as the Lord of hosts. I want to urge you, as we read Isaiah 8 as it's picked up by the Apostle Peter, to not be afraid, or at least to be rightly afraid, of the Lord, that you sanctify Christ in your heart, and therefore you give up your fear of looking stupid. You give up your fear of being embarrassed. As you live your life of hope, and people demand an accounting of it from you, that you're on the front foot, unashamed, unembarrassed, uncaring, of what others might think of you. I heard a story recently of uh, someone uh, who explained uh, the gospel uh, to a person that they just met who, who audibly laughed at him repeatedly throughout his explanation. But Christ had been set apart in his heart as Lord uh, and he didn't care. He held out to her the word of life. And as we enter uh, two weeks of particularly uh, invitational uh, meetings, here at the EU public meetings, you get on the front foot looking to bring the word of life, the word of Christ, to others and not being afraid. Of course, our main interest is in Jesus, the King, the wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. These prophecies find their fulfilment in him. In one sense, they're true already of him. He has great authority. He's our mighty counsellor. And yet at the same time, of course, the world that he rules is not yet in place. His rule is contested. And so in a sense, we're like those remnants, still in exile, waiting for our king to appear. And our task is to stay faithful and trusting and obedient and hopeful not shifting from the hope that has been held out to us and to sing, to sing the chapter, uh, to sing the song of Isaiah chapter 12. You'll say in that day, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away and you comforted me. Surely God is my salvation, I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say on that day, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the nations, even the funny little nation of Australia at Sydney University. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion. 
for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, Holy One, we pray that you would keep us in this faith and hope that we have grasped and strengthen us as your faithful people for Jesus' sake. Amen.